Good morning. I don't know where you go to consider the nature of human beings as creatures whose existence is fixed in a single moment of time and space and the unchangeable nature of that. But one of the places I experience this most profoundly is on Princess Street. (laughs) When I am waiting for a green man to appear on one of those crossings on Hanover Street, Frederick Street, or South St. David Street. And you get there, and after a while, there's quite a large crowd around you. And we're all waiting for the traffic light to go green. There's time for a small lunch. There's time to... (laughs) There's time to get to know the person next to you. If they weren't doing exactly the same thing as you were doing, which is eyes fixed on the light. It's got to change at some point. Surely it's going to change at some point. Sometimes someone makes a break for it. (laughs) And this goes one of two ways. One, it's really dangerous as a bus or a taxi from some unconsidered direction suddenly swings around the corner, honks their horn at them, and they scamper across. Or, I don't quite know what the feeling is that you experience when this happens, but you feel like they're smug because they get across. (laughs) Or maybe even the dream, the lights turn green as they're going across. like they already knew. Either way, it's a bad example to any children there, so you really shouldn't do it. (laughs) Of course, as the bus goes past, I think to myself, I could have caught a bus. That would have spared me this wait here, but then, of course, I would have waited for the bus. I go into shops, and there we all are, and we've been waiting to get paid so we can go to the shops. We've waited for the weekend so that we can bring our pay into the shops, And uh, there we are served by people who are waiting to go home (laughs) or waiting for a better job to come. All of us go past posters all around the city centre that say, hey, there's an event happening, there's a product about to be launched. We'd like you to get excited about that. We'd like you to anticipate it, to wait for it eagerly and then please to buy it or participate participate in it in some way. A new film or TV show is coming out, a new phone, another festival... Hey, get waiting. And at this time of year, people talk about the summer holidays that have finally come that they've been waiting for for so long. And then pretty soon afterwards, we'll be talking about Christmas. And we'll be waiting for that. As I continue to wait at the traffic lights, thinking of all of these things, considering the nature of time and the inescapability of waiting, bless you, A tram will shuffle past, and I'll be reminded again of how many of Edinburgh's large infrastructure projects have forced us to learn about waiting (laughs) as well. We're always waiting. Since we're always waiting for what's next. We grow up with people saying, what are you going to do next? What's next? What's coming next? And so that's how we think. And because we are fixed in a point of time, but have an imagination and anticipation of what's to come... We, we do this a lot. We think and we, th- and we think and we wait for what's next. And often the assumption is that the what's next will be the thing that ends our waiting. When that what's next comes along, we'll be satisfied, we'll be peaceful, there'll be no more waiting. And then the more and more that happens and it doesn't work out that way, we realise, well, perhaps we'll always be waiting. 
Some of the things are trivial, some of them are much more serious. We might wait for character change in ourselves or in people close to us. We might wait for a change in our culture, for fairness or justice. We might be waiting for healing. We might be waiting for marriage or for children. We might be waiting for the restoration of a relationship or for a cause to be achieved. Seems we're always waiting. And because the Bible is the most real book in the world, there's loads of waiting in it. People are waiting, it seems, all the time. There's Joseph. He spends 10 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit, waiting, hopefully, to be released, because God's given him some promises that have nothing to do with being in a prison. He's waiting for them to be fulfilled. Later on, the people of Israel are released from slavery in Egypt and there's a promised land for them. It's literally a promised land. They have to wait for 40 years before they can get into it. It's kind of their own fault, but they're still having to wait. David is anointed as king by God. So you'd think the next day he would begin reigning as king. No, no, no. Years of waiting have to be endured before he becomes king. Actually, Anything in the Bible from the third chapter onwards is essentially waiting. Because in the third chapter, life goes wrong. We sin, we rebel against God, and everything is broken, and everything is ruined. But even in that moment, God gives a promise that his chosen one will come and heal it all, and fix it all, and restore it all. And so from that moment onwards, you can read the Old Testament as a tale of waiting. When is the chosen one going to arrive? Well, in the New Testament, he arrives. It's Jesus. But how does his story begin? Well, he has to wait for 30 years before he starts preaching and healing and showing the power and the love of God. And then he says, it's nearly time. And everyone gets really excited because they've been waiting a long time for this. The Jews have been waiting ages and they think, great, God's going to come, we're going to be in charge, everything's going to be good. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus dies on a cross. He was waiting for that. No one else was. The shock of that is then multiplied by another shock because on the third day, he's risen again to new life. And so wonderful, victory's now fully here. Except that after a few weeks of Uh, appearing to his disciples, making sure they know he's really, really alive and teaching them more about what this means, he ascends to heaven and he says, wait. His victory over sin and death has been won. He is reigning and ruling over all things and by believing in him, by asking him to come into our life, which he willingly does right now, we can experience this victory but not fully yet. The fullness is still to come. I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the eternal joys awaiting those who follow Jesus and just the wonder of this coming uh, reality and how we can get thrilled now when we experience a glimpse of it, a moment of God's goodness, a sign of what's to come. We can set our mind to anticipate this, but we're still waiting. This is called, if you want a technical term for how you're feeling, if you're a Christian, eschatological tension. So if you ever wonder, how I've just got eschatological tension. (laughs) Really bad today. That's a legitimate thing. We have tasted of the age to come. 
but it's not fully here yet. We know and we love God, but we don't see him face to face yet. This is the utmost waiting of the Christian experience. But then obviously there's back to waiting on Princess Street, the waiting that everyone experiences, whatever you believe. But even this is made more tense if you're a Christian, because you believe in a God who is personal and active and who loves us and who loves people. And so particularly when we're waiting for the good to come or we're waiting for rights to be wronged, we don't just have this tension of one day it will be, but why not now? Why not yet, God? If you don't believe there's a God, I'm not quite sure what you're waiting for when you think about it. If everything's just going to end in a blank. But Christians believe that God's alive now, believe that he's reigning now, and yet it doesn't quite look like that yet because they're waiting. And so you have this double, this double wait. So how are we going to wait? This is our series at the moment, If This Then That, How to Respond to Different Times in Life. And today we're looking, as you'll have guessed, at waiting. And to help us with this, I want to read one of the most extreme examples of waiting in the Bible. The language we're going to read is so severe, it might seem to overwhelm what you're waiting for in comparison. So we're talking about waiting. I don't know what that would mean for you right now, what, you'd, uh, what you're living in anticipation of, what you're hoping for, what you're frustrated by its absence or its lack right now. Whatever that is, there's a danger that when you read this, you think, well, it's not that. So clearly mine doesn't count. That's not what I'm doing by reading this to you. What I'm wanting to show is that what's true at the worst of times is true at all the other times as well. I'm not saying when we look at this, see, it could be worse. I'm saying, look what God is like in all of our waiting, in any of our waiting. It's in a book called Lamentations. If you don't know the book of Lamentations, you can probably guess what it's like because that is an accurate title. It's an extended uh, poetic consideration of what's been going on. What's been going on has been pretty awful. It was written after Jerusalem, the capital city and the location where God dwelt on earth of his people, had been destroyed by foreign armies who had been sent by God to defeat his people as a sign of his judgment on them uh, for their consistent and horrific rebellion against him. And so the armies come and they destroy the city, Uh, they exile the people, they tear down the temple. And God had promised that this would happen And he promised that that wouldn't be the end of the story, that he would bring his people back, that they would restore the land and rebuild the city. But they would, you've guessed it, have to wait 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 11 said that. And so our writer in Lamentations has to wait. Here's their experience. I am the man who has seen affliction under the, wrath, under the rod of his wrath. His, God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. 
He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Our instinctive response to this may well be, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? As you stumble through the rubble, as you are assaulted on every side with no sign of a better day ahead, you conclude the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You say, His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And yet what seems to happen every morning is fresh attacks on you. Another roadblock, a different wild beast assaulting you. And the only thing that never comes to an end is your suffering and the silence of heaven. And yet you say it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. How? How is it possible to think that way? How is it possible to live that way? How is it possible to wait that way? Well, the answer is given here and is backed up in many other places throughout God's word. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Isaiah 64 verse 4 gives us a bit more detail. It says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. 
This is what God does. He acts for those who wait for him. And Galatians 5.22 tells us that patience, the ability to wait contentedly, the ability not just to kind of put up with, but to be hopeful through all sorts of things. Patience is not something that you've got to grind out yourself, but is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a work of God in you. As you cooperate with him, as you trust him, he grows this fruit of patience in you. And so the writer of Lamentations isn't some kind of superhero of waiting with abilities that we could never have. He's just an ordinary person who believed God. And as he believed, he received grace to wait. It was incredibly hard, but not impossible. Because God acts for those who wait for him. He is good to those who wait for him. Whatever it is that you're waiting for, whether it's for the summer holiday to arrive or for life as you know it to be transformed, God can be with you and will be with you and help you through your waiting. And by doing so, he will show his greatness to you and through you. And we're going to look at six choices we can make which through which God will give us the grace that we need to wait well, whatever it is that we're waiting for. So six choices we can make. Here's the first. Be honest about the struggles of waiting. Don't fake contentment. You may have noticed in the passage we read, the writer did not hold back, did he? They weren't like, how are you? I'm fine. I was seeing the clip uh, the other day, someone shared it on Facebook uh, from friends years ago, uh, when uh, one of the characters, Ross, has given news that his ex-girlfriend and one of his best friends are going out, and they ask him how he is, and he says, I'm fine, and the entire episode is how unfine he is, but he keeps saying, I'm fine, and Christians sometimes think they need to act that way. How are you? I'm fine. You're like, you don't seem to be fine. No, no, I really am. It's like, everything seems to be on fire behind you. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. The writer to the lamentation of, of Lamentations does not do that. He accuses God of attacking him, ignoring him, poisoning him, breaking his bones, using him for target practice. We find similar statements, similar sentiments expressed in the, in the Psalms, the songs of God's word. Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, God does not assault us. God does not forget us. But these are poems of pain. These are records of the writer's felt experience. They're saying, God, this is what it's like. They're not statements of God's character. They are declarations of in the moment pain and suffering. And they're allowed. They're in the Bible. They didn't sneak in. There's a lot of them. God's listening and he knows. Maybe there's something you're waiting for and other people have it and you're kind of sick of seeing them have it and maybe even take it for granted, something that you would cherish so much. You think, 
this is hard. Well, tell God. Don't come to him in prayer. Lord, I'm fine. Come to him in prayer. God, this is hard. If you feel weak with waiting, you're almost embarrassed by, you know, just that, that your lack has such a significant effect on you. Even if you know it's something that you're wanting more than you should, you say, God, this is what's going on. You can bring it to him. He knows. He does know. (laughs) You can't fake it with him. But he also loves to hear from you. He loves you to be honest with him. 1 Peter 5 says that we can come to God casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All of them. You can throw them all at his feet. He won't flinch. And he understands. Now, it's kind of different because he, you know, he made time. So he exists out with time. His existence isn't linear in the same way that ours is. But Jesus lived among us as one of us. Jesus knew what it was like to wait for the next day and for the next year. And actually, you see Jesus experiencing impatience with people around him. And he kind of iterates somewhere between kind of benign amusement to he's pretty incensed. He says, how long must I wait with you? How long must I put up with you? So Jesus knows, God knows what it's like to be agonized by waiting. So when we read all the stories of waiting in God's word, that helps us to realize that he understands. So seek them out. You can be encouraged by them. You can be comforted by them. It's so good to know that God knows. So often when we feel like we're suffering, we're struggling, we think no one understands. That's obviously never true. It's not true directly. But we can often think, well, God, you don't know. No, God knows. His word testifies to it. Remember the first time I heard Proverbs 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I just remember feeling relief. Because I was like, that is exactly right. Hope deferred does make the heart sick. Wow, God, you know that. You don't have to be okay. You don't have to be okay at all times during a wait. Not in this church, not with this God. So be honest. Second choice, focus on God, not on what you're waiting for. The writer of Lamentations makes a conscious choice, and it is this conscious choice which releases God's grace into his ravaged mind. He's rehearsing and describing and suffering freshly all that he's going on. And then he says, but this I call to mind. It's the hinge of the whole book. It is Pretty much the halfway point. You've got, um, it's, it's quite a short book. It's full of suffering. But this middle point is the key to it all. It's the hub of it all. I will hope in him. Wait for him. Seek him. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. In all his sorrows, he focuses on God. When we're thinking and praying about something we're waiting for, when we're longing for it, when we're imagining what life would be like if only we had it, it is so easy for that to become the only thing that we focus on. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? You know, where does your mind just drift to in those moments? That's often a good sign of what it is that you're waiting for, and it can be deadly dangerous. Because 
There's something we want, something we need, something we must have, something that we really can't consider life without, something that we would frankly give a lot, possibly everything in exchange for. If only we could have that thing. That's called idolatry. Called idolatry because you're putting something in God's place. You're saying, I need this thing. When what we need is God. He is our sufficiency. But even if you don't go that far, even if you're like, no, I just, I just really want it. I'm worshiping God, I'm loving God. I just would really like this thing to happen. Giving all our attention to something we don't have, however legitimate a thing is, it just, it just seems unwise because we are focusing on an absence in that moment when there is the fullness of God for us to direct our affection towards and our attention towards. And this will lead to frustration, it will lead to sorrow, it will lead to a weakening in our faith because the thing that's at the heart of us, the thing that's our focus, the thing that we're all about, isn't there. And possibly even if we get it, we find out it isn't quite all it was cracked up to be, even if it's the best of things. That doesn't happen with God. And so we have got to give him our attention. Search your Bible to see his beauty and his faithfulness, his goodness. Find those places. When you're just reading through it day by day, this is the beauty of God here. This is the faithfulness of God here. Lord, I'm believing you again today that this is who you're like. Sing songs about his goodness and love. Just spend time praising him. You are good. You are wonderful. You are beautiful. You're faithful and true in all that you do. Bring to mind the things that he has done for you and around you over the years your sins that have been forgiven, the provision that you've been granted, other blessings that he has freely given you, remembering how you don't deserve any of them. Uh, You were an enemy of his, but instead he's made you a child. Pray prayers of thanks and praise, not just petition. As we do this, as God becomes our sufficiency, as he becomes our life and our focus, we have a story to tell that the world will be amazed by, that our God satisfies, that our God is enough, that even when we long for something, we have him and he's enough. We might instinctively respond to Lamentations 3 with a sense of incredulity. People would do the same if they saw your life, perhaps. How can you conclude that when this is the case? We say, well, because we've looked to God and we've seen him and he has given us himself and that's enough. And that will amaze a waiting world. Third choice to make, trust that he cares rather than believe lies about his character. See, seasons of waiting are key moments for how life's going to go and perfect opportunities for the enemy to turn your heart against God. You're waiting and you don't have. Questions come to your mind. Not your own. Accusatory questions about God. Why hasn't he given you this? Why has he given them this but not you this? He doesn't love you. He isn't strong enough to do that. He can't really be there. I've often seen this, particularly in the lives of of younger Christians. 
It's a key test. God often, when he comes into someone's life, wants to make them fully aware of his presence. He's just answering prayers left, right and centre. Everything's just going wow. And they're like, wow, he's really there. And you think, yes, he is. And then a little bit later, they're like, where's he gone? Because the pattern of my prayers being answered straight away has kind of come to an end. What happened? Ah, yeah, he's going to teach you something else now. He's taught you that he's really there. Now he's going to teach you something about waiting. And it's a key moment. It's a key moment. I've seen people just wander away. Because when it was good, it was good. But when I had to wait, that was hard. And it was easier not to. Got to trust that he cares. Not believe those lies that say he's not there or he doesn't care. We must not sit in judgment on God's character. We don't know the story. We don't know that we don't know everything in it. Only he does. Our ignorance is pretty great. Our knowledge is pretty slim. We should act accordingly. But what is it within that knowledge is sufficient because we can believe and trust what he has shown us about himself, that he is good, that he is faithful. Lamentations 3 is perfect for this. When I read it, many of you will have been like, I've heard that. I've heard that verse. That's a good verse. I like it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Man, get that in your heart. Get that in your heart. And then in the waiting, when the accusations come, say, no, no, I've read this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I don't care what you're saying. I'm saying great is his faithfulness. I don't know the rest of it. I know this. Romans 8.32. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? God is for us. You're looking around. You're waiting. You think, I'm not sure he is. He is. Listen. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay. So I'm waiting. He, he cares. He isn't, just, he isn't just waiting. He cares. Jesus had some friends, a family, uh, Mary, Martha, and their uh, brother Lazarus, and they sent a message to Jesus that Lazarus was terminally ill, and Jesus waited. And he didn't go straight away. And by this stage, he just has a fairly phenomenal reputation for healing everyone. And they love him and believe in him. So clearly, he would heal Lazarus if he was there. But he waits. He doesn't go. And then he goes. By which time, Lazarus is dead. And everyone is in mourning. And it's a highly charged emotional scene. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't arrive on the scene and say, what is wrong with you? Are you, are you stupid? I'm here. Remember, I raised people from the dead. Why on earth are you crying? He doesn't do that, does he? No, because he cares. He weeps. He knows what he's about to do. Everyone else is crying because they think we're never going to see Lazarus again. Jesus knows in like a minute they're going to see Lazarus again. But he weeps because he cares. Whenever you see him dealing with some injustice. Maybe the temple's full of people who are making crooked money off, uh, off people's worship. Jesus is like, well, I've got to fix this. He doesn't just go, oh, turn that table over, turn that table over, turn that table over. <laughs> He's furious. He's furious. Because it's an injustice. An injustice makes the heart of God rage with a righteous anger. 
He cares. God is not some cold, calculating chess player. He is the Father who loves us. He's the Saviour who died for us. He's the Spirit who counsels us, who comes alongside us. That's who God is. Trust that. Fourthly, persist in prayer rather than giving up. I've said we need to become, or we need to beware the danger of becoming single issue prayers. God, it's me again, so I'm praying for that thing again. That's a danger. The opposite danger is also a risk. Just give up. It's just, it's better, yeah, it's better not to hope. It's better not to wait. Give up. There's something in our hearts that can die in that moment. There's something about faith that, that calcifies, that becomes stone, that becomes leaden when it should be alive and dynamic. I don't always feel like praying for the things that I've been praying for for years. Some things I reflect on and be like, Lord, I mean, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. I've been praying for this like over 20 years. You still haven't done it. I don't have a huge amount of emotional energy to pray for some of those things, but I'm just going to knock on the door again. Just today, usually it's a kind of a one-line prayer. Lord, you know, all the other times I've prayed, I'm praying it again. Would you please change the situation? Would you please get glory? Amen. I'm going to move on and pray for some stuff that's fresher, that's, uh, that I've got more emotional capacity for, frankly. But that's all right. I'm persisting. There are sometimes moments where God just gives you a fresh burst of faith. And you're like, man, I was struggling about this. Now I'm really going for it. Now there's a, just a, a new moment. But persisting in prayer in general grows this kind of faith in us. Because there are then moments when he answers. And he, he doesn't want, he, he wants answered prayer to have a yes. I've been asking you for that. He's like, I know. I was with you. Wasn't it good that this has now been answered? He wants you to have that, which is a faith moment rather than a, oh, you did it anyway. And he's gracious. He does that. But he's wanting our faith to grow. And so persist in prayer rather than giving up. Fifthly, get on with today rather than putting your life on hold until you get what you've been waiting for. This is worth doing if for no other reason than what you've been waiting for might not happen. You might be waiting for something that isn't going to come. And that's difficult. But Jesus says, follow me today. His mercies are new every morning. Today. Still not married. Still not parents. Still not got the dream job. Still suffering injustice. Still tired by the world around you. Don't get stuck. Jesus will give you everything you need to follow him today. And by doing so, he'll redeem the waiting whether you get what you waited for or not. He'll redeem it as you follow him today. You can find ways to obey God now rather than think that you can't do anything until you get the thing. I don't know what that thing is for you, but there are things like, you know, when that happens, boom, my Christian life. Oh, you, should see, you should see me then. Uh, see you today. And God's going to give you grace today. This this is, just a, this is just a how you get by day by day. This is how God gets us by day by day. He gives us grace for today. But this is also, this can be something that can be very difficult because you may have to make a decision 
And the implications of making that decision are saying that that thing that you were waiting for probably isn't going to happen. And so you say, by doing this, I'm admitting that the dream is going to die. Got to be real about that. But don't forget, we do have a God who can raise the dead. And that's the excitement of it. And getting on with today can, of course, also involve taking practical steps that lead to the thing that you're waiting for becoming a reality. Getting involved in the things that you want to see changed. Making decisions now that for that preferred future will help you get there. We don't just sit and wait. Uh, we follow Jesus today, and if there's things that we can do that can help us in, our, in bringing that thing closer, well, then we do them. Final thing. Look forward rather than fixating on now. Whether your dream dies or is brought back to life, whether you see what you've always been waiting for come to pass or not, Christian hope is always bigger than the things of this life. If you're more aware of what you presently lack than what you'll get in eternity, may I politely suggest you're looking in the wrong place. It's understandable, but it's not where you want to be looking. When the New Testament talks about waiting, it is almost always about Jesus' return. Even we had communion this morning, and so what do we do when we think about communion? We think about Jesus dying on the cross. We look backwards, except that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim his death until he returns. So even when we look backwards, we're looking forwards. That's how Jesus returning focused the Bible is, and we are meant to be. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're waiting for. See, I could have scattered throughout this talk stories of people receiving the things that they've been waiting for. I could have shared some of my own experiences and other people I know and famous people. And we would have been thrilled by those because they would have had the moment and it would have felt like a happy ending. And it's really more of a happy middle. There's only one happy ending. Of course, we get other things and they're wonderful. And God's kind to us and loving and it's good. But the thing we're really waiting for The happy ending is the coming of God's kingdom and the fullness of his life, filling us and all things and making all things new and bringing him fully into our consciousness, bringing us into his presence and being with him forever. That's what we're waiting for. That's where your joy will be found. That's where your fulfillment will be found. That's where everything that you've longed for, you'll be like, ah, made it. Got it. Let's think about this. Let's dream about this. Let's pray about this. Let's make all of our choices in light of this. And by the way, Jesus does say that if we seek his kingdom first, we will get all the other things we need thrown into. When that day comes, all our waiting will have been worth it. In the rubble of Jerusalem, the writer of Lamentations looked forward to its rebuilding, an event he was never to see. He would die before it happened. But he did see it. He looked with eyes of faith. And God blessed him and kept him. And we too live in a world that's broken. and We experience loss and we suffer assaults along the way. Our every moment of waiting is a reminder that life is not yet 
as it should be, but one day it will be. We don't wait as those who have no hope. It's coming. He's coming. And as we wait, God promises to be with us and to help us every day. This is our hope. So we wait. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are impatient creatures. Lord, traffic lights and slow internet speeds. They just seem too much for us sometimes. And then we get a glimpse of having to wait for something a bit longer, something a bit deeper, a bit harder. And it's, Lord, it's really hard. But you do it. So we say, we're not like you. You are greater than we are. And we worship you for that. And Lord, we also know that you are, we know in our heads, we've heard it in this word that you're sufficient for us. You are what we need. You are who we need. We don't always treat you like that, Lord. We put our hope in other things. We long for other things. We doubt you because of our lack of other things. And Lord, we're sorry for that too. Lord God, turn our eyes to you. Help us to make good choices, right choices. Give us the grace we need. Please, Holy Spirit, grow this fruit of patience in us. Keep us hopeful. Keep our eyes on you. Give us the grace we need for today. Amen.